Welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that helps you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime. You've got this. This podcast contains general educational information on weight loss for physicians. I am not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace the need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing. Welcome to episode 197 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. Thank you so much for joining me. I have a really exciting episode here for you today. Dr. Kelly Kasperson, author of the book, You Are Not Broken, is joining me to talk about all things sex and specifically, what are some of the myths that we have been raised with? What are some of the gaps in knowledge regarding having an enjoyable sex life throughout all phases of your life. I found the interview was super fun to do. Obviously, if we're talking about sex, we're talking frankly and openly about a lot of different topics. It's probably not an episode you want to listen to with your kids. So just be warned about that. Before we get to the episode, I wanted to share a weekly tip. And within the episode, we talk a little bit about some of the labels that are often applied to women. And what it made me reflect on is inside my coaching calls this past week and lots of other times, there often comes up the concept of as women physicians being afraid of being thought of as bitchy or bossy or some negative connotation, especially I find for physicians who are in more of a specialty, especially if there's more an emergency element to the specialty, there's a fear of being perceived of being bitchy when they're trying to advocate for what needs to be done for the patient. And I think this is a real issue in our system. And I do think things are perceived differently if it's a woman or a man saying it, depending on the situation that you're in. But here's what I would suggest if this is something that you struggle with. The problem with it is it's people-pleasing, and it means if you're worried about being perceived negatively by doing or saying what you feel needs to be said, often it'll make you edit yourself. It'll make you hold yourself back. Or sometimes it can make you come across a little edgier just because you're so uncomfortable about the idea of saying it that when you say it, you kind of blurt it out. Focusing on what you have in control in any communication situation is very important. So what you have control over is how you show up, what kind of emotional state that you're in as you say stuff. You have control over how you say things, the words you use, the tone of voice you use. And you can modify these things to both get what you need across and to treat other people around you with respect. This does not mean that you always have to try to make sure everybody around you is happy. If there's time allows and you can do things in a really chatty manner, great. But sometimes in medicine, it doesn't. The things that are not in your control are what the other people think of how you showed up and how you said stuff. Sometimes you can be in the best way possible and feel that you really said things appropriately in an appropriate tone and it still can get perceived negatively. Because how it's perceived depends on how that person's day is going, what their previous experience has been 
with being spoken to, maybe what your past history has been together, if it's a colleague you work with other times. But you can't actually control that. If you're a physician that finds you worry a lot about how you might be perceived when you're advocating for your patients and asking for things to be done and pointing out when things haven't been done in the way they maybe should have been done, bringing it back to what is in your control and focusing on that. How do you want to show up in this particular situation? What do you need to care for yourself so that you show up in your best way so that you feel that you handle the situation in the best way that you can? And then you let other people have their own perceptions and try not to get too worried about their perceptions because you never have control over them. You have control over what you do and how you show up. You don't have control over how somebody else perceives it. Okay, little tangent, but it it really does impact weight because a lot of physicians struggle with this throughout the day, feel frustrated about how they're perceived, edit themselves and feel frustrated by that because they're worried about how they might be perceived. And guess what happens? triggers a whole lot of eating. That embedded frustration throughout the day when you finally get home, what happens with that is you end up eating to try to manage it. Plus, when we're thinking about the concept of thriving in our weight loss and in our life, always spending our time worrying how other people might perceive us when we're showing up and doing the best job that we can do isn't really thriving. It takes away from the ability to thrive. If you can work on this one thing of Really focusing on showing up with integrity, being happy with how you show up, being happy with the work that you do, and letting other people be responsible for their own reactions and their own emotions and not spending time worrying about them, it can go a long way to making it feel like you're thriving more in your days. Now, this is why I'm having Dr. Casperson on the podcast today, because sex is also an important piece of thriving in our lives. And as you know, I don't want you to just lose weight. I think that's a really low bar to set for yourself. I want you to be able to lose weight, feel comfortable around food, not always be obsessing about food, have confidence that you've got it managed, you know how to manage it for your life, and thrive in it. So what you're doing to do all that, you're actually liking and loving, and at the same time thriving in your life. And human beings are sexual creatures, so Focusing on how to thrive in your sex life in a way that works for you, that honors you, is a really important piece of thriving as a human being and thriving as a physician, which is why I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Casperson to the podcast. Let's get to the interview. Welcome to the show, Kelly. So happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. All right. Introduce yourself to everybody. I am Kelly Casperson. I am a urologist. So I'm I'm Dr. Kelly Casperson for my day job. I've been practicing for like 10 years now at a residency. And my niche, things I love, is talking to women about sex ed because we don't get an adult sex ed. We don't get like you're in a long-term committed relationship and you have a job and kids sex ed. Like it doesn't exist. That's my thing. And through that, I actually learned a ton about menopause because it kept coming up in regards to sex. So now I'm menopause certified as well. So like my passions just keep taking me places that people need help in. Awesome. And you just wrote a book. Just wrote a book. You are not broken. Stop shooting all over your sex life. Because you know this, like when people like tell you facts, they're just thoughts and they're usually like should thoughts of like how the world should be. You're like fighting with reality. And with when you don't get sex ed, All of your shoulds about sex can come from like Hollywood and religion and like your first boyfriend, and they're all really bad. 
So it's undoing all of those shoulds that we think are the facts and the rules about sex. Let's just jump right in and talk about what are some of those? Like, I'm going to challenge you. What's the biggest one? Yeah. But yeah, the biggest one I see is I should have spontaneous desire all the time for my one person who I've been with for years. After I've been working all day and I have kids, I'm tired. I should have spontaneous sexual desire. It's a big myth. It's think of what sells products in our culture. Sex does, right? And think about what Hollywood is. It's spontaneous desire, right? You're hot and heavy all the time. And then so many women feel broken because they're like, well, I could kind of take it or leave it this month, right? And two things on that. Number one, the male default is spontaneous sexual desire. Because when you have a testosterone of 700, your spontaneous desire for sex can be higher than if you have a testosterone of like 60, which is where a lot of women are. And then the other thing is like in long-term relationships, it's completely normal after about six to 12 months for that dopamine drug-induced high to go away. That's just brains. Right. So we don't know neuroscience. We don't know rules about relationship. We just assume we're supposed to be hot and heavy all the time and want it. The second piece to that is a lot of women are just having bad sex. And that's my melted ice cream hypothesis of like, I love mint chip Haagen Dazs, but if it was melted, I wouldn't want it. Right. Like sex can be awesome, but if you're having bad sex, you're never going to desire it. Tie in pain. Right. About 20% of women have pain with sex. So they'll come to see me and they'll be like, I have pain with sex and I have low desire. And I'm like, no, you don't ever desire painful sex, right? So you got to fix the sex first and then the desire can come naturally. So the big myth is it should just be spontaneous throughout my lifespan, throughout the length of a relationship. And where a lot of women have, and again, I'm being stereotypical women, men, we are gender diverse, but a lot of women have responsive desire or receptive desire. And what that means is the desire for having intercourse or sex comes during or after. Meaning like I was not thinking about it. I had other things on my mind, but I'm like, yeah, okay. I prioritized it, you know, and let's do it. And he's looking kind of good. My partner's looking good. And you start having it and you're like, oh, why do I always forget how awesome this is? I always forget. Like, this is great. We should do this again, right? The desire for it is during or after. It doesn't come before. And so many women, stereotypically, don't have sex because they're not sitting around spontaneously desiring it. Whereas like my education is don't wait for desire. It's not an essential ingredient to have a good time. They basically have no sex life because they're sitting around waiting for this mythical, spontaneous desire to happen. Yeah. So for the people that don't have the spontaneous, how do they get into the responsive? Like I could see that being, uh, especially the ones where the responsive comes after. How do you counsel people to just get going on it, even if it hasn't shown up yet? Yeah, let's say that she's been like, well, first of all, just to clarify that, you don't need desire to have sex. I always clarify, I'm not saying have sex when you don't want to or with who you don't want to have sex with. All that consensual, you love your partner, you know it's going to be a good time. It's just not in your top five this month, let's say. So it's really prioritizing the time, right? Sex will be the last thing on your menu. It's not essential for life. The other thing I see a lot of busy people do is they put sex right before bed. And it's like, you're exhausted, man. You will literally die if you don't get enough sleep. You will not die. The species will die if none of us have sex. But like, you will literally never die if you don't have sex, right? So you're tying sex into like a very heavily competing important thing. So it's like separating that out, prioritizing it and saying like, I'm 
in a sexual relationship that I would like to have the sexual relationship continue. I'm going to have to prioritize that. And I tie this a lot into like, think about exercise or think about for me, it's eating vegetables, right? Like I do not spontaneously desire chopping vegetables, cooking vegetables, or eating vegetables. But I want to be a person who eats vegetables in my life. It's important to me. I enjoy it when I do it. I'm just not like, oh, you know what I really want right now? To chop carrots and eat them. So it's like, I want to prioritize vegetables, but waiting for that desire is not something that's going to get me what I want in life. Now, you mentioned bad sex. Well, let's talk about what is bad sex? What makes sex bad? There's so much bad sex. (laughs) It's very, very bad and common. So bad sex, I'd say, prioritizes the male. And I'm talking a heterosexual penis-vagina partnered couple here, but... If you look at same-sex couples, they have less orgasmic inequality than the heterosexual couple does. This is actually a unique problem to the when you have a penis partnered with a vagina, to be like very boiling us down to body parts. We prioritize the male orgasm. Sex ends when he has an orgasm, and if the woman has an orgasm, like bonus, right? But it's not prioritized. So really, it's prioritizing somebody's pleasure over another, Where this comes from, many things, think I blame Hollywood a lot, lack of sex education, but not understanding that what makes a woman have an orgasm is not putting a penis in her vagina. And the clitoris is her penis. It is her erectile tissue. It is what will bring her to orgasm. Only about 30% of women will have an orgasm by putting a penis in the vagina. Those 30% are usually because they're getting clitoral stimulation at the same time. So all of these couples are going around having heteronormative penis and vagina intercourse. And she's like, yeah, I could take it or leave it. I don't have desire. And I'm like, well, you're not having as good of a time at the party. If I went to a party I wasn't enjoying, you can't make me desire that party, right? So it's really prioritizing her pleasure, understanding how female bodies work. We can't just penetrate. We must warm up the body. We must warm up the mind. It's very heteronormative just to say sex starts by putting something in the vagina. The vagina, just anatomy tidbit, it lengthens and tilts back and becomes can become more moist with proper arousal. And if you don't do that before you put something in it, number one, it can hurt. But number two, getting to an orgasm might become a lot more challenging. Or when a woman says, like, I just feel numb down there, it's like you weren't providing any arousal context. You were just putting something in your vagina. It might as well be a tampon. Tampons tend to not be arousing right? We can put things in our vagina that aren't arousing. So it's really understanding how our bodies work and what we need to enjoy our sexual life. And if we're not doing that, it's certainly not low desire that's the problem. It's lack of sex education and prioritizing quality in that relationship. Yeah. And I think there's a huge, like if we're just talking about female pleasure, there's a huge gap in education of even anatomy. Like I think back to med school and when we were taught anatomy, Nobody taught the actual anatomy of a clitoris. No. And you know what happens in medicine is when we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist, right? And there's many examples of that in medicine. But it's like, if it's not mentioned, when I was in urology residency, we went to a, like all the residents went to this course on the East Coast and this expert in erections came up and he's like, well, women are complicated and we'll never understand them. And what do you do when you're a young person in medicine? You think that person knows the truth, right? What I realize now is when you just flip your hand and say you're complicated, it's a wonderfully dismissive way to change the subject, right? Instead of like, well, maybe because medicine was and still is very patriarchal, right? Like we didn't have women teaching anatomy ever, and it just got dismissed. 
So what we do know is that the clitoris has as many nerve endings and blood vessels as the penis. It's almost as big as the penis, just 80% of it is internal structures. It hides underneath the labia. That's why labia and inner labia play, vibration feels so good. We just neglect it, right? So the clitoris is incredibly important. It's there for a reason. And the only organ that is only about pleasure, because the penis has to pee and the penis has to get sperm through it, right? The penis has three jobs. So it's literally the only organ of pleasure and we blow it off like it doesn't exist. But think about like, I don't know what your sex ed was. When I think about my sex ed, like in third grade, right? It was ovaries and uterus for the female anatomy. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I'm not sure if we were actually taught vaginas or urethras or like any of the other external anatomy. Or vulvas. How many of, you know, the adults just call everything down there a vagina, right? Like the vagina is the only the inner part that you actually can't see. People don't even know that because when we don't name something, it doesn't exist. And the other thing that we've done in our culture is we've labeled those body parts as dirty. So there's an entire industry to clean them. If you go to store shelves, which is not necessary, don't do it. But number two, if it's dirty, then you don't talk about it. You certainly don't touch it. You don't get curious about it right? So we've really shamed these body parts. So interesting. As you say that, there's not a shelf for the men genital cleaning products. Dude, we should totally do that. Like scrotal cleansing would probably sell. <laughs> this, get, in this, get in the scrotal folds, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It'll be like a dip. It'll be like a little bucket that you can yes. dip into. The tank cleaner. Defresh. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. But it's like preying on that. Like, we think that body parts that have sweat glands should smell like oranges and lilies. It's like, it's all marketing and it's all fake and it's all designed to make us feel we're not enough or we're broken. Yeah. It's so interesting. We lucked out because I went to UBC and so we had Rosemary Basson who works at UBC. Oh my so, God. That's like more than lucking out. That's insane. Totally. So we actually had really decent sex med teaching, I think compared to other places. And I actually did an elective with in their clinic too, which was fun way back when. But let's talk about the sex before bedtime thing, because I can hear a lot of people listening to this going, okay, but when else? <laughs> like, if it's not before bed, when the kids are in bed, how the hell does that happen? You have to prioritize it. You know, when do you exercise, right? When do you do the laundry? When do you, like, people have prioritized these pieces because it's important, right? If it's important to you, you're going to prioritize it. If it's not, you're not going to prioritize it. Uh, truthfully, the average sexual experience is like 20 minutes long. People watch two and a half hour movies on the regular. Do you know how many hours of television or internet people are on on an average day? It's four hours. So when people say they don't have time, I don't believe them at all. Like my phone tells me that I've been on my phone for three and a half hours every single day. It's insane, right? So, so like we have, we now we think we don't have time. Oh, I'm so busy doing all these busy things. And it's like, realize that's what you're choosing your life to be. To me, it's all priorities. Yeah. Is an element too of like sex shouldn't be done during the day or like what you, because I, I see this like with coaching people with weight loss and stuff. Often it's like, okay, self care can't be done when the kids are around and. And so like, I imagine this as similar thing happens with sex too, of like, okay, I can't just run home from work or book a block off for sex because that just wouldn't be right or something. It's like, just like all things in coaching, but it's like what you make it mean, right? Like in our society, women who enjoy sex or women who have air quotes, too much sex, whatever that is, what do we call them? Sluts. Right? Sluts. 
you don't want to be a slut, do you? Sluts probably have sex at 11 in the morning, right? So what we've done is we've said, you're broken because you have no desire for sex. You're broken if you enjoy sex or you have too much sex or you prioritize sex. You're not screwed any way you cut it, right? <laughs> so, so to me, I'm like, it's what we make it mean. It's like, well, what do we call women who prioritize sex, right? Like get under that to be like, maybe that's why you're not prioritizing sex, right? So it's always the thoughts that we have about all this. And I feel very passionate about this time scarcity thing and coaching because I had that recurrent thought for many years of like, there's not enough time. There's not enough time. There's not enough time. And the pandemic helped me. It was like my clinic shut down. I was hardly doctoring. I was, I had my hand on my daughter's bedroom door. I had five days where literally you can't leave your house because there's a new pandemic and we're all going to die, right? Like you Mm -hmm. couldn't even go to the park. Remember like back in March? Yeah. (laughs) So like there was literally nothing on the agenda for five days. And I had my hand on the doorknob and my brain said, there's not enough time. It was like the right spot to call the bullshit of it, to be like, oh, hold on. Wait, is there literally nowhere to go for five days? Why am I having? So I... And I work and you get coached on your time scarcity and why you think there's not enough time. And then how our society tells us there's not enough time to sell us things and make us stressed so we can buy things. And where does that not enough time come from to unpack it? And I think that's why, again, I think sex is like the topic that will give you the most personal growth. Because if you can undo all of these thoughts that limit your sex life, you're like, dude, I'm more productive than I've ever been. And I have the exact same amount of time because I worked on my thoughts. It was the thoughts about that that were the problem. And so when people are like, I don't have enough time for sex. And I'm like, well, you created a life where you don't have enough time for sex. Is that the life you want? If it is, great. Own it. Say, I don't prioritize sex right now. But make sure that's okay with your partner because you are in a marriage contract that's a sexual, like, right? Like sex is part of a relationship and we don't get taught how to talk to our spouses about sex. But it's like single-handedly, one person can't decide. It's a partnership thing. It's not a, it's not a one person thing. So how, let's talk about that then. How do you talk to your partner about sex, especially in the setting of like a libido mismatch, which is kind of what you're talking about? Totally, we have to normalize libido mismatch first. Again, who gets blamed Is it okay for women to have a higher desire than their partner? No. Is it okay for a woman to have a lower desire than her partner? No. The woman really can't win here because we have a very heteronormative definition of like whatever the man wants as far as sex is that's like the blueprint. And then we're just always floating around that, right? I don't want it as much or I want it too much. Either way, she is filled with intense shame about that, right? So I always want to normalize desire mismatch is completely normal. It's two different people in a house trying to navigate life, right? Like I love leaving town to go on trips and my husband would love nothing more than to have staycations all the time and just hang out on the couch. Like we have like vacation leaving the town mismatch, right? It does not mean either one of us is right about it. There's no right. It's just navigating what works for the relationship. And I like to normalize that, right? Like I really like protein shakes a lot and my husband super loves pasta. We have like, you know, lunch mismatch, but it's not devastating and we're not going to break up because of it. We're going to be like, hey, maybe pasta once a week is good. You should have your protein shake every day if you want. I'm just not going to have it with you every day. Right. But when you normalize sex and turn it into like a food experience or working out or vacation, you're like, yeah, yeah, that is so easy. But sex is so hard because you're not allowed to talk about it. We got no education. It's like you're entering a possibly 50 plus year 
marital relationship with somebody and you have no skills, <laughs> right? You guys didn't even define what cheating means to you, right? Cheating means very different things to people. Did you put that on a piece of paper before you got married? Right? Like we legitimately never talk about this until shit's hitting the fan. So I want to just normalize like people who talk about sex and navigate it, they're winning in so many ways because it's a hard conversation. You're practicing being a good listener. You're practicing figuring out what you need, what they need, what the relationship needs, right? Like this is all huge personal growth stuff and it's awesome. But I think a lot of people think sex talk should be like one talk and that's just how it's going to be now. And like, especially when we think like sex now should be how it was when we were 24. And it's like, life is not how it is when we were 24. And a lot of us don't want to go back to being 24, right? But we certainly have high-stress jobs. We've got kids now. We've got aging parents. Our body's aging. We've got perimenopause and menopause happening, which is a whole nother podcast for you. Our partner might have erectile dysfunction. That's huge, right? So it's like, normalizing that sex changes through our life cycle and through what's happening in our life. And the conversations about it isn't one and done. And if you can talk about it when it's easy, I'd say easy is like, I don't have any of those problems. I just have desire mismatch, right? Navigate it then. You can navigate it when you're like, I'm so stressed this month. Or man, my body just feels like, I just feel really unhealthy right now. And I don't feel like being touched. Or like I'm breastfeeding and my breasts really don't feel like being touched right now. So being a good listener, talking about it when you're not naked after like a failed experiment, but like, I think walking's really good. There's something about walking and people facing in the same direction that's very non-threatening with difficult conversations, right? There's something about that. So like walking's really nice. Planning, if your partner really likes to like get a heads up if scary stuff's happening, like, hey, you know what? I've, I learned a lot about female sexual function and issues that like really resonate with me. Can we talk about this like on Saturday? when we go on a walk, right? Like diffuse it and just, and make it, we use this so much with sex. You're the problem. You're the problem and I need to fix you, right? And all genders are guilty of that, right? Well, I'd be more sexually attracted to him if I could fix him. It's like, that's, you can't, no, you can't do that. That's an adult. And conversely, the male partner will bring the female in and be like, she has low desire, fix it. And I'm like, you do not seem like somebody she should be sleeping with in the first place. <laughs> So it's probably like, you know, I just made you drink from a fire hose, but it's sex and navigating it is so big and complicated. And there's so many benefits of like being a person who can navigate this, that it just, it sets you up for success. So many different topics. And a lot of people listening have kids. And so let's talk a little bit about talking about sex with your kids. Because that's the issue that a lot of us might not have had somebody actually talk in a normative way about sex. So how do you suggest parents approach it? Yeah, short conversations and many. So I don't know who said this, but they're like, instead of one 30-minute conversation, have 31-minute conversation. The other thing I think, especially for younger kids, I'm thinking like, you know, 7, 10, is starting to show them how women are portrayed in society. Isn't it interesting? They're trying to sell that hamburger with having a woman in a bikini. What does that mean that a woman has to be in a bikini to sell a hamburger? You know, just like, because we don't learn these messages that give us body image issues for the rest of our life, you know, and like pointing out that. So isn't it interesting that like they didn't, in, or movies, right? Isn't that interesting? They didn't even know each other and now they're already kissing and doing that. Like, what do you think about that? You know, well, and just like getting people to think like sex surrounds us. It's everywhere. There's always an opportunity to be like, hmm, that's interesting. For younger kids, 
normalized body parts. It's your vulva. It's your urethra. We have data that says kids who know body parts are more likely to report an assault or report something that's gone wrong. If you just call everything down there, air quotes down there, like how, how does a kid tell you something went wrong, right? They have not been given the tools. So it's only not only a safety thing, but a self-advocacy thing of like, no, we, like, this is how we clean our vulva. We got to clean our, right, not just bumming down there. So that's certainly what I've started doing. Boundary issues consent, things that our generation did not get was consent. And only nine states currently mandate consent in sex education. So we've got 41 states where consent isn't even talked about. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, and how many people, I see this a lot, but so in a long-term relationship, she's having sex not because she wants to. She's having sex because he wants to. And I think this is tied way back into the consent. Of like, And the other reason that she's having sex is to control his behavior. Well, if I don't have sex with him, he's going to get grumpy. He's going to stomp around the house all week long. I'm like, that's enabling emotional childhood, right? So there's like so many coaching pieces in all of this of like, no means no. And no means no for your whole life. Now, if it's no for the rest of this relationship forever and ever, that might be something you two need to talk about, right? But how can you make a no a yes in like prioritizing her enjoyment, her pleasure, a lot of women don't know what they want in the bedroom. Again, because what do we call women who enjoy things in the bedroom, right? It's a double-edged sword. And so my tips for that is like, instead of trying to figure out what you want, try to figure out like the sex that you don't want, right? I'm exhausted. I just lay there while he gets off. I rarely have an orgasm. Sometimes it hurts. Like that would be sex I don't want. And a lot of women are having that sex. But for kids and teenagers, consent, consent, consent. And that with the female's pleasure is as important as anybody else's pleasure. You're not doing it to gain favor. You're not doing it because somebody else wants to. You're doing it because sex feels good. That's sex at 101. Why do we have sex for our whole lives? Because it feels good. We have connection. We feel close to people. We feel love. All these good things. If we truly had sex to have babies, we'd be having sex twice. 1.4 times in America, 1.7. Yeah. And I think the pleasure piece is like the piece that is completely out of sex ed like not discussed, particularly not the female pleasure. I was, uh, <laughs> ever since like the, well before I ever had kids, I've been like, this is something that has to be discussed because years and years ago, we went for a walk late at night and we're sitting down at the beach. This was when I was in university and there's a whole bunch of teenagers out at like 2 a.m. <laughs> at the beach, right? And I was listening to their conversation and one of the girls said to her friend is, oh my God, I can't believe I blew him. But he says he's going to ask me out on Monday. And I was like, oh. <laughs> oh yeah, it's not good out there. Like the, the data coming out of, you know, university hookup culture. If you look at it, let's go back to that orgasmic inequality. If you do hookup culture, orgasmic inequality, the female has an orgasm seven, four to seven percent of the time. The man has an orgasm 98 percent of the time. So what is this culture really doing? It's promoting male sexual enjoyment. Yeah. And from that day, I was like, if I ever have girls, I will teach them from an early onset. Totally. Well, and boys, too. Like people who have boys, they've got a lot to learn, too. That's not how you treat people. I mean, and the big picture is like sex can be used as a weapon. Absolutely. Like as much work as I do in promoting wonderful, lovely sex, like I have to acknowledge it is used as a tool of violence, especially against the female gender in our world. And so anything I can do to empower one person at a time and to teach their kids to be like, this can be a beautiful thing and it is a beautiful thing. It's just, it's not for a lot of people. So good. Any other tips or 
myths that you want to touch on before we wrap up? Going back into the pleasure thing, right? Is number one, I think a lot of our audience is like, we're busy, we're professional, we've got kids, we're taking care of everybody else. You know how many women I see who are 60-something or older, their husbands finally freaking died, and now they're in my office being like, well, I've never taken care of myself, I suppose I should now, right? And it's like prioritizing self-care and pleasure not only benefits you, it benefits everybody around you, right? Like, If you catch, you'll catch her every once in a while. You will catch a sexually confident woman and you'll be like, what is she doing? Look at her, right? Like she's comfortable in her body. She knows what she wants. She knows how to communicate. She enjoys pleasure in life. Like that woman is a powerhouse. You'll catch her. She's around. But I think a lot of women, it's tough for them to prioritize pleasure with sex because they don't have prioritized pleasure anywhere else in life. Right. Or their pleasure is Hagen Doss on the couch at the end of the day when the kids go to bed, which like hands up, I'm completely guilty. But let's pay attention to that. End of the day, we're super tired, we're exhausted, the kids are in bed, I'm on the couch, I'm catching up on social media or whatever I'm doing. And I got mint chocolate chip. And it's like the dopamine that you're getting from mint chocolate chip and social media is easy and fast. And like you don't have to communicate about it. You don't have to expend any calories about it. You don't have to decide to get turned on about it. But when that competes with sex, sex will lose. Sex is actually like a little bit more difficult than ice cream and social media on the couch for all the forsaken reasons, right? People are like, I just want to, and it's like just fully, and it's just good to understand it, right? Of like, that's really easy dopamine. And our brains just want the neurotransmitters, man. We just want the drugs. You can get that from sex, but it does take more work. I mean, it doesn't take tons of work, but it takes more work. Like, communicate with the partner, go get turned on, spend some time, you know, arousing yourself, have an orgasm, doing a little bit of exercise. Like, that's more work, but it's really good to know, right? Because people are like, I just want to lay on the couch and blah, blah. It's like, yeah, of course you do. That's really easy dopamine. I personally, like, maybe for other people, but I personally, sex is hard. And I have a great sex life. Dopamine on social media and haagen and chip for me, way easier to get the neurotransmitters. Our brains just want the neurotransmitters, man. Especially if you're not getting orgasm or pleasure out of sex. Now ice cream and social media is really winning, right? So just understand, like, it's just good to understand those things. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the self-care thing goes back further in the day too, right? Like part of the reason why haagen and social media is so tempting on the couch is because we run our days like we're running a marathon. And that's the first time you've had a chance to rest. Well, I think that goes back to your question of like, what if I don't have time for sex? And I'm like, do you want to live a life where you don't have time for sex? Like, let's pause and like put that on a mirror and look at it. And the other thing is like cortisol. Again, you know, I was a neuroscience undergrad, so I love all this stuff. But it's like, like you said, we're cortisol all day long. We're putting out fires. We're go, go, going. What does it mean when we stop and take 10 minutes for ourselves to meditate or go on a walk, right? It's not okay. So we're cortisol all day long. Orgasm and arousal doesn't live in a cortisol-heavy environment. You've got to be in your parasympathetic nervous system. You've got to be more relaxed. You've got to be more receptive, receptive to being touched, receptive to dropping into your body and getting out of your brain, right? So many women struggle with wandering brains during sex. That's why it's Lori Brado, again, from UBC, where you were, did the Mindfulness for Better Sex book like teaching women how to be mindful, how to meditate, how to see the thoughts and let them go. Because 
she's coming in for sex and she's like, but my body and my thighs and the laundry and the work meeting and the, I got in a fight with them last week. And she doesn't know how to turn off her brain in order to enjoy sex. And that's a very big piece, I think, of a lot of people's sex lives. And it's like, I've taken to doing yoga. Instead of Haagen-Dazs Mint Trip, I've taken to doing like 20 minutes of yoga at the end of the day. After I've done that, I'm like way more receptive to sex. My husband's like, oh, you did yoga. Are you interested in anything? <laughs> it's <laughs> like, like, yeah, so, you're somebody, doing yoga. Somebody's been paying, somebody's been paying attention. But, uh, <laughs> but really learning, I mean, that's an important skill, right? I'm in this cortisol fight or flight. How do I transition to rest and relaxation and knowing our body needs to feel safe and not like there's like 12 fires in order to enjoy sex? And a lot of people just think like, again, it's going into the desire and arousal thing is we're not light switches. We can't be like 20 point to-do list, touch me real quick, have orgasm, right? It's like there is a transition that has to happen and you have to learn what that is for you, right? Is that your partner taking care of the kids so you can go take a bath or you can go on a run or you can go do yoga or you can go journal or you can go sit by yourself in your bed with a vibrator for five minutes? Like what, whatever, I'm just throwing out ideas. It's n- You're the only person who's had your body ever, like you get to figure it out for yourself. But knowing like you're not broken, if it takes you a couple of minutes to transition from a sympathetic nervous system to a parasympathetic nervous system, which is where good sex is. So good. All right. Where can people find you? My podcast is called You Are Not Broken. That's available on all the podcasts. My website's Kelly Casperson MD, and that's the Instagram. I'm most active on Instagram. I love it. So Kelly Casperson MD for that. And where can people find your book? Amazon website too. If you go to my website, you can download the intro, which I think is the best chapter of the book. There's a free intro for you if you want to get it there. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So many good things in that interview. I love hanging out with Kelly. She's fun to hang out with and has such an amazing base of knowledge about sexual education. And I think we could have talked for hours, honestly because there's so many other things we could talk about on this topic. If you have any questions or comments about the interview, please send me an email, info at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca. I love to hear from you. While you're at it, I've mentioned this before, but I'm gathering questions for my 200th episode. It's a few episodes away. So when you listen to this, if you have a question or if you have something you want me to talk about on the episode, send it in. Email me, info at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca. If you are a physician and you're ready to thrive, check out thrivephysicians.ca, which is my comprehensive six-month coaching program for physicians only, where we really go to work on making your life amazing while you lose weight in a way that you love. It doesn't get any better than that. Check it out, thrivephysicians.ca. And don't forget to make sure that you order Dr. Kasperson's book, You Are Not Broken. It's available on Amazon check it out and leave her a review. All right, we'll talk to you later. Have a fantastic week.